This is Dabalon. My name is Trent Reynolds, and in this podcast, I have conversations with artists about materials. If you are enjoying this podcast and want it to continue, please subscribe or make a one-time contribution at dabalon.com forward slash podcast. Stop the episode, go to iTunes and leave me a five-star rating and tell all your friends. The longevity of this program very much depends on your support, and I thank you. In this episode, I have a conversation with Christian Rebin, who I met in graduate school in Chicago many, many years ago. He makes really great paintings that are wonderful to look at and don't require any explanation from me. You can see them on his Instagram feed at Christian Rebin Art. Rebin is spelled R-I-E-B-E-N, Christian Rebin Art, or his website, ChristianRebin.com. Or if you happen to be in or near Johnson City, Tennessee, and looking for a good time, his exhibit Folly is on display at Reese Museum in Johnson City, Tennessee through July 2nd of this year, 2021, which I would love to see. The scale of his work is something you obviously and unfortunately can't appreciate seeing the work on phone or computer screen. So go see his work in person if you get the chance. Here is my conversation with artist, painter, Christian Rebin. If you if you don't mind, I in, indulge me a bit, and I I might be misremembering, but I'd like to go back to my very first memory of your work, which was in Chicago. We were in grad school together, and I remember you putting out a bunch of I think foot by foot square paintings of landscapes, um, and they were kind of rolling hills, and you were including um, different kinds of fabric. If I'm remembering right, and it was like gingham, <laughs> oh, yeah. and it was like We're going way back. <laughs> yes, this is like okay. this is first first recollection I have of your work. Um, so there's gingham, there's gendered fabrics, there was uh, fabrics that I, if I remember right, were chosen because of their connection with different locales. So there's kind of a, a, a tie to to place or culture. Um, and they were, but other than that, they were, they were fairly, I don't know, I guess there's a lot of saturated color and they were flattened. You were dealing with kind of a Wayne Tebow distortion of space. If I remember, this is all, again, I might be misremembering yeah, you're doing this. pretty well. Um, but there was a fairly dramatic, uh, departure from that or evolution from that point. So I, I want to, I'm curious to hear your thoughts looking back at, at that period. I, I mean, I'm sure it feels like a forever ago, but when you were using, um, fabrics, when you were using mixed media, now you're just pretty much straightforward oil paint on canvas from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think now looking back at mixed media? Do you, do you, um, do you, do you have any attachment to that? Do you... <laughs> well, that was, I mean, you, you know, the program that we were in and, it was so intense um, and I was so impressed and um, possibly even intimidated by my fellow students there that I really threw myself into um, the program and the ethos of the program, which was to just experiment. And right. so I was, I'd come in doing these, um, 
landscapes that were kind of tied in. I, I moved recently back to the States and I was seeing some sort of correlation between um, the American landscape and the American character as I saw it. Mm. And so that kind of translated into um, what does this uh, so-called American landscape look like when it's depicted on these uh, specific cultural fabrics from the Middle East or Sub-Saharan Africa or, or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just, uh, you know, I, I felt at, at the time, I'll get rather uh, autobiographical here. I felt at the time that I was on the old side of going to grad school. I think I was uh, maybe 35, something like that. Hmm. And, um, I mean, there were people older, but most people were younger. And so one way I um, just coped with that was like, well, no one's going to accuse me of being conservative in what I'm doing here. <laughs> so I just like tried everything, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I, I used all those fabrics and I had stuff coming off the wall and all that kind of thing. And looking back, um, there's a, I guess there's a few sort of nice images if I think about it. But for the most part, really, the important thing was just me um, experimenting and getting comfortable being in a situation where I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I've taken from that whole period moving forward. Um Right. So in grad school, that, that is the ethos, right? That is like well, trying to try new things, theory. get yourself out of, you know, normal ways of, of doing and thinking. And, um, and I think there is definitely, I don't know, built into that situation. Like, it, like, uh, it's easy to get self-conscious and feeling like you're not, I don't know, there's like a imposter syndrome that happens a little bit. And there's a, like, wanting to yeah there's like a of course there's going to be a comparison because you're going into a, a highly competitive program with uh, other people that you know who are doing what you're trying to do i don't know i feel like my experience was that it was really hard to to get through the noise of what was i don't know what was i kind of forcing myself into because i thought that's what the expectation was of the institution or of, of the people around me and what was really mine and what i was after yeah, I, that's that sounds correct. I mean, I uh, when, you know, when we finished that first year and then started the MFA, um, I carried on with that kind of thinking that like I'm going to try all these things and, and whatever. Um, but then, what really was an important point for me was when I realized, well, actually, you should be making art that you personally are connected to. Right. And, and not just sort of, um, I mean, the whole, the experimentation thing is fantastic, but now apply it to something that you actually care about. So how did that's, that's the moment I'm most curious about. What, <laughs> when was that? How did that happen? Cause I do remember this, like you were up on, I, I can't even remember what the floors were now, but you were the floor above the studio floor above. And I remember walking into your studio and it was like this complete turn and your paintings felt so confident but so totally different than what you'd been doing previously. Like there, there to me was like this palpable change. And it's like you, you resonated, you locked in on something that was just, you know, 
undoubtedly much more powerful and focused. What, yeah, what, I, how did, how did that happen? Well, it, uh, it was kind of a perfect storm in, in some ways. So I had had, um, a brutal critique, um, the end of our first, um, semester of the MFA and, um, like scathing. <laughs> so I had done all these kind of, uh, cityscape things and the faculty just totally ripped me to shreds. And, um, the gist of it was like, we don't think you care about this stuff. And so I went off and mulled that over, um, over the break and, um, realized that, oh, they're actually, they're right. I don't care about that. What I care about, um, is I had pretty much fallen in love with one of our classmates <laughs> mm. who was not into it. And, um, that was what I actually cared about, not sort of these depictions of Chicago. Hmm. And then the challenge came, like, how do you, how do you represent that sort of situation? And I, I stuck with the landscape motif, but it became a much more um, idiosyncratic and sort of internal landscape. I was hmm. working with two really great professors at the time, Susanna Coffey and Galen Gerber, so they were like, just by chance, you know, perfect for that situation as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was that was it. Then, but as soon as I kind of broke away from this need to replicate what my eyes saw and tried to represent more like what my what my heart was feeling, hmm. um, that was liberating. And that's where I had that really rich vein of work come out of it. Right. So that's interesting to me that that it, it is there is a process of winnowing, like figuring out what is not important, and then also you know, you know retaining what is. So there was an aspect of landscape that stayed with you, and I wonder also was there other other stuff that you retained from the previous work? Was there um, a color palette? Was there a, a sense of light and space? And was there anything else that you think you held on to? Uh definitely held on to stuff. I don't know in that work, um, all of that stuff sort of got subsumed by the content. Um, mm -hmm. and I was really just kind of getting comfortable with this new vernacular that I was working with as time has gone on. And certainly now, um, those like traditional, uh, landscape painting issues are more present. But at the time, uh, you know, yeah, sort of, but um, but I was really just sort of like, ooh, how do I represent this particular thing that's going on right now? Right. And then, you know, also, and I'm sure this is true for you too, like, you know, we've been out for, I don't know how long, 16 years, 17 years, something like that. Oh, gosh, has it been that long? <laughs> and, you know, those voices often come into your head when you're uh, working on something just about, you know, oh, you, you need to look out for this, or when if we're painting this kind of thing, then you have to do this in response or whatever. So those, and those become second nature then. So at what point did you just decide to get rid of everything except for oil paint? Like, it, was that part of that, that shift or had it already happened before that? I, that wasn't, there was no conscious decision to do that. Um, for me, painting is really hard. <laughs> like I'm not a, I don't not a natural painter. I'm much more a natural draftsman. Like drawing comes super easy. P 
painting is just like there's all these mitigating factors um and i do not need to make it any harder for myself by bringing in other things hmm. like there's plenty there for me like even you know now we've been doing it for a long time and i'll still be have times in the studio where i'll be like i can't believe I call myself a painter and I can't do this thing, you know, <laughs> like I was just painting this dog yeah. head and I could not get it. I can't, couldn't believe I couldn't get it. Mm. So I don't need to like bring in anything else to make it harder. Like it, and what the, you know, it's, it's hard, but it's a really nice kind of hard. Like it's, it's right. challenging, but my success rate's good enough that it's, I'm not totally discouraged by it. And what does painting have to have to offer as a medium that you can't get in other media? Like photography or charcoal or the 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 biggest thing and this is i think true for most painters like and i tell my students this all the time like the biggest weapon we've got is color as painters hmm. and color is it's so powerful um but so dangerous because it's so it's so seductive and it you know takes you down this path and suddenly you're no longer in control like colors in control so that's that's going to be the biggest thing that paint can do that i don't see in other media um the whole thing though like i I struggle with photography with appreciating photography Mm. um and i think and so i and i wonder like why is this and i think then there's something to do with the physicality of paint too which is um what makes it so attractive to me i'm you know i'm really um I'm enchanted and mystified and challenged by this weird phenomenon that paint is where you've got this tube and you squeeze it and this pure color comes out and you can make this color turn into things. It can become the illusion of all these sorts of things, but it can also just be this like paste, this color paste, you know? Right. So that's, that's just weird and interesting to me. Um, so that's like its strength and its, its weakness to you. Um, and I think that's something in in um, my painting that's always been there, and I didn't even realize it until it, actually Susan Kraut um, pointed it out to me at one point, where I do all these things in the paintings to create this sort of illusion of space and depth, and then I'll destroy it with this like whatever this like flat blob of paint or something like that. Mm. Um, so that I think that's in some ways just sort of an extension of the paint itself. Like it is this, it can do these two things, you know, it can right. be this illusion, but it can also just be this thing. Well, it just sounds like it's enough for to hold your interest. It's hard enough. It's a challenge enough. It has enough potential within that one medium that you don't, you aren't called to search elsewhere. For me. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's absolutely enough. Um, that's, just, and that's just my sensibility. I'm, I'm kind of a, in some ways, um, a one track person, like, I'm kind of, you know, right. like I might have a lot of interest, but everything's kind of on its own little track. Um, and if I, if I was, someone told me like, you must include video in your work now, um, or you must make it kinetic in some way. I, I just would be overwhelmed by all these other potentials now, you know, and I've got, I have enough potentials as it is. So one of the things that that prompted me to to start this podcast is I've always been interested how the materials that artists use reveal a lot about the person, right? Like, so you go to an art school and there are printmakers, there are photographers, there are, you know, graphic artists, illustrators, and then, you know, studio art, painters, sculptors, you know, what have you. And 
there's kind of a personality and there are different things that you start to see patterns in these different communities of different kinds of artists that, you know, tend to, to kind of go toward one direction in art. So having, I was, I was just thought that would be a, an interesting conversation to have with people just to look at art making through the lens of the materials we choose. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> and I think it's interesting, not just uh, the materials we choose, but uh, I don't even know what uh, I've, I've Kind like of, how we use the materials? How we use them, but also what doesn't interest us about others' materials, right? <laughs> or what doesn't <laughs> – it's not just the positive, but it's also the negative, right? It's like, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's so uh, compelling to think about how uh, – Well, I could not be a printmaker. Like right. I – just i'm a slob and you know <laughs> right. uh, yeah that's like lets me get yeah. away with that mm -hmm. and printmaking would not right and every once in a while you'll see a printmaker that's like i don't care about registration i don't care about <laughs> series but you know in my in, in inside i'm thinking you're not a printmaker you're a painter right it's yeah. like you're a painter like enjoying kind of going up and going in and messing up the shop of a printmaker do you uh how have you kind of evolved over over time in terms of your identity as a painter? Do you uh, is uh, is that what you are? Are you a painter? Are you yeah, an artist? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. I feel. I remember actually. I don't know if you remember this, but um, we had an interesting discussion uh, in our post back uh, seminar. And I think I don't remember which professor it was, but asked, somebody asked the group, like, when did you first describe yourself as an artist? Mm -hmm. And most of the people in our class were like, oh, I was eight years old or <laughs> whatever. And I had not felt comfortable. I'm not sure I even felt comfortable then doing that. Mm -hmm. And part of that, I think, was tied into um, the sort of... Uh, capitalist society that we live in where it's like if you're not making your living from what you do then that's not what you are or something right um so i wasn't comfortable then i'm quite comfortable now doing it i often feel uh i mean you you probably as well that when you're talking to non-artists and you're saying what you do um i mean i i would first say painter but of course, then they think you're a house painter, and right, right, so you right. have to clarify that. But I feel, um, you know, a painter—that's how I see things. That's how I solve problems. Is um, I solve problems, you know, in my canvas the same way as I do in my life. Hmm. Printmakers solve problems differently, for sure. <laughs> Not that they have problems. <laughs> oh, they got they got plenty of problems. <laughs> And so describe a little bit what your, uh, what is your, what are your materials? What's the size and shape of your paintings? What is, what kind of canvas do you use? What kind of, uh, paints do you use? I use, so I guess up until the last year, I was just doing big canvases. Um, I don't paint on linen. I just paint on canvas. Uh, and they were big. They were, um, uh, this last big series was, maybe like 72 by 96 or something. They're like really big. Yeah, um, and that's pretty much as big as my studio um, in terms of its height. And that was, that, that, that sort of came out of the previous body of work, which was figurative and very, um, 
very heroic in its subject matter, but also in, in its approach. And it, so it seemed it seemed appropriate for that. Big canvas means your your problems are big too, <laughs> and um, so that's what I was dealing with. I like I like a big space. I like I like it to maneuver in. I'm actually pretty comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. I don't remember why I started doing some small canvases, and, and small for me would be around uh, let's say forty inches, more or less. Um, maybe I. I think possibly it's just because I wanted to have some stuff done. Like the big mm -hmm. ones, you know, the last few big, big ones I was working on, I spent over a year on um, just changing things and, and all this sort of deal. And so I started the small ones um, and they came really easy and that was really nice. So, um, so will you only work when you're working on big ones, you only work on one at a time or two at no, a time? I would work on a couple um, now I'm working on like six or seven at a time, but those are, there's a lot of little ones in there. Got it. And that's possibly because I have this show that's still up and I was just working on, you know, six or seven, just trying to get them done um, mm -hmm. and it, it works well. So then like, you know, something can be drying and you're working on another to, to go back to the materials. I, um, I use sort of a mid range, uh, or mid value um, range of paint. Um, so not the best, best stuff, but not super cheap stuff either. Um, okay. Recently I've been into Charvin. Um, hmm. What do you like about that? I, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. It's a, it's a French company. Uh, they have some really interesting colors of their own that they, they mix up uh, that I enjoy. Hmm. And I think initially I, Started using them because I don't know there was probably a deal, and I I always like a deal. Um, but then I but then I kept using them. Um, so so I'm into those. I've also um, there's a British uh, range. I think it's called Jackson and Perkins or something like that that I've ordered um, from them in the UK, and uh, and that's a really good quality. There is the European paints. I think are really good quality. Um, mm. So I, and when I'm over there, I try to I try to buy some, and, um, and that's and is is there a pretty specific palette that you've developed over the years? You're looking for particular pigments, or are you always I like experimenting? To use, I like to use new things. I like to mix it up for myself. I have my default colors that I um, just seem to end up using. So I like to really kind of not let myself fall into that so automatically. So I'm always doing kind of like a it'll be the phthalo turquoisey things going on and a pink and a cool yellow i tend to like cool colors mm -hmm. so i i try to um then buy you know warm colors or you know i'll see a color that looks really interesting i'll buy that it's not something i would normally use and then it's uh then, then it's a fun challenge you know then it's like um oh god i have to make this horrible cadmium beige thing work you know um <laughs> So it's it's good. It keeps you on your toes. Yeah. So Thalo, do you man Thalo Thalo? Love and hate with Thalo. I know it takes. <laughs> well, I'm forgetting now who the who the my advisor was. His first name was Kevin. I can't remember his last name. Do you remember? Oh, Kevin? Uh, you know who I'm talking about. He's, he I, had glasses. Yeah, and, I do know who you're talking about, and I'm blanking on his last name. He was the biggest promote, proponent. He he loved mixing with phthalo he always had it on his palate and I, and so for a while i tried it and man it just <laughs> destroys the whole painting turns a into little this kind goes of, a long way oh 
Goodness. But is so so you've got Thalo out on the palette always, or is it just when you are well if you card? I mean if you saw my palette, it's like there's a pile <laughs> of tubes that right. I kind of deciphered the ends of, you know. Um so it's always in there. Right. Um I, I just there's something about it, especially you know, when it's mixed with some white and it mm-hmm. gets this really eerie kind of glow to it that um I don't I just go to for it. For sure, for sure. So Benacridone's another favorite. Like I love Benacridone. Got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can. Now that you say that, I can definitely see that in the work. So Thalo, Quinacridone. What uh, are there other colors that you tend to reach for? Uh, cool yellows, like a, a lemon yellow. Um, I, I think that there's a um, cerulean with a uh, a cool, but not. A red that's maybe made up of quinacridone and cadmium, mm-hmm. like that pair, the cerulean with that red is always really good looking. Hmm. Uh, but again, you know, one of the one of the things one of the things I love about painting is uh, I don't know where I'm going to end up, and so I I really do like to try to do new things in a painting, and um, I'm terrible. I think I'm terrible with brown, um, hmm. so I'd like to try to work better with brown. You know. Got it. So in that in that situation where you have a color that you would like to experiment with or want to want to learn how to use better, how do you set that up in a painting, or what what does that look like when you actually? Uh, I go? would just start with brown. I mean, mm-hmm. I uh, mm-hmm. I start almost all my paintings um, reductively, where I'll put down a ground and then I'll just start wiping things away, mm-hmm. and um, those those wipe marks and splatters and whatever start to look like something and then i kind of go down that that route so uh if i was doing this brown painting which i haven't (laughs) done yet um i would just like mix up this brown and then i'd start wiping it away and then we would start to see some sort of space or characters or what have you and then i would have to get some colors in there to, to play off that brown um so and if you're I, yeah. the, the traditional approach is to use like a, a burnt sienna burn umber for the reductive part of the, you know, that initial uh, layer, what colors are you using now? Oh, well, whatever. Phthalo. Phthalo? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, like I said, with this, with the Charvan, like there might be a color that they've got, they've got something, um, and I'm not sure the exact name of it, but it's something like warm cobalt, something or other. And um, so just like if I like this color that Charvin has mixed up and is selling, then I might just use that as the ground just as it is. So I won't mix some, I won't mix the ground. I'll just mm-hmm. put that down and then bounce off of whatever that looks like with its varying degrees of value. And your, your choice of color, does that, is that decision made in response to the subject matter, you know, you're going to be working with, or are those kind of separate issues, the subject matter versus the, the palette. Uh, yeah, I never know what the subject matter is, or at least not recently. Um, mm. That sort of, I mean, I'll, you know, obviously I have things that I'm thinking about in, in the last four plus years. Uh, that work was very political in nature. So that's like always in your head. And then you're more inclined to see things relating to that when you see these ambiguous marks on a canvas. Uh, but I, I don't really go in with like, okay, it's going to be this two figures doing this thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's more like I'll see that with these blobs and I'll turn it into that. 
So that that initial turning point when you had that harsh critique and then you came back and did that that body of work, that what you cared about was tied into your love for somebody, right? Yeah. Uh, have you continued to like how do you determine what it is that you're going to make paintings about? I assume that you've moved on from that that one person, maybe not. Oh maybe. yes, very much. <laughs> maybe, um. maybe there are uh, still feelings there. No, 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 no. but uh, is it love that continues uh, to occupy most of your your paintings, or is it uh, what it, else? It, uh, it can be. Um, I uh, two years ago I lost my wonderful dog. Um, who was really just this this fantastic companion. And so I did this. I did a very large painting um, made up of four different canvases, sort of as a way to, as, as a tribute, um, but as a way also for me to to like be with him. And it, it's, it's in this big, this show I've got up. And it's... Um, it's a depiction of uh, the woods here in Appalachia and, and we go on these great walks through them and trying to convey this idea of what it's like for a dog to be in that situation where there's this sort of exaggerated sensory uh, experience going on, but then also, you know, sharing time with a, a loved one and, and that, that emotional component. So I tried to convey that in the painting, those, mm. those two things. So, you know, that does, uh, emotion is absolutely a, a big part of uh, potentially what happens in the work. I, I am a pretty emotional person. Um, I'm not necessarily comfortable showing that, mm. <laughs> but, mm. but it's there. It's a big motivator in, in how I uh, respond to the world. In that regard, is painting functional? Like painting is a way that you, a channel that you've found that you're comfortable with exposing your emotion? Where yeah, other... I, I think, I think mm. it is. Um, I can put things up there. I guess, yeah, at some point, um, I mean, thinking back to that whole body work in grad school, like that was, I think that was kind of shocking to a lot of people that I was willing to put that up on the wall. Mm. And um that maybe that was a that was pretty instrumental then in me getting a, a relatively thick skin with um, sharing those things with the public. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can put this stuff up on the wall and people can laugh at you or pity you or whatever, and you're still going to be fine. Mm -hmm. So it's you know you're not going to die, right? And it, it might lead to actually some good work. So mm -hmm. it, it's it's worth it then. I yeah, I think that is such a an important idea that you know that you need to focus on things that you care about right it sounds so obvious i don't know how to say it in a way that sounds as you know right or, yeah. Uh, yeah exactly but it is so much harder to do than it might seem i guess maybe especially in a school where you know there's this you know anxiety about having some kind of intellectual justification for what you're doing right and right. it's easy to get away from just like do you even care about this stuff well, I think it's hard to, um, as a as a teacher, when you're teaching young people um, who are still, you know, they're figuring out who they are, and mm -hmm. so they might not feel that strongly about something. And now their teachers telling them, "Paint what you care about." <laughs> right. Well, I don't know what I care about, you know. So that can be a challenge for them. Right. 
And it can be a challenge of just feeling, figuring out like what you care about that deserves, you know, this kind of position of honor, you know, up on a canvas or of, of focus. <laughs> dishonor, <right? laughs> yeah. <laughs> or dishonor. So I remember in that, uh, again, going back to that first series, there, there was, in a lot of them, there was kind of an altar type of, or central, uh, not a shrine, but something, kind of a memorial object, memorializing object. I don't know if that's a fair way to characterize it, but it seemed like you had a, a kind of a theme, an object that uh, was a center point or centerpiece of, of the concept behind the work or the idea behind the work. How do you, uh, you, you talk about just putting a color on the canvas and starting to, you know, wipe away areas. Is there, are you thinking about a space? Are you thinking about an object? Are you thinking about a theme? There, I mean, you're a figurative painter. You're doing stuff that's recognizable. What is there any kind of organizing principle that that you go in with, or that you, you know, kind of forms informs how you uh, develop the image? Um, I'm I'm very intuitive and not so schematic. Mm. So I really just respond to things that are there, um, and I don't go in with an idea that, okay, it's, I've got to do this and there's got to be that. And then I'll do this. You know, there, that's not what, that's not how it works. Right. Um, and that's, and I actually feel pretty strongly that that's the worst way to do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that I think uh, our, our paintings have potentials far beyond what we can see for them at the start you know, and that, right. that conversation between you and the painting will get you to a better result than anything you can come in and impose upon the canvas. Right. So you just, now, people are going to, people will dispute that. But, so uh, is the idea, out. so you just, are you, and then you've got this color on the canvas and that's when the development begins. You don't go in kind of with a preconception at all. Oh, the, the biggest preconception, I mean, I just started one, day before yesterday. And so the biggest preconception would be um, there, I, I'm, I'm working in landscapes right now. So that's almost just a given. Mm -hmm. And then um, I might say, so what I was thinking the other day is I'm doing these, I've been working on some of the, you know, these six or seven canvases and they're almost all kind of, there's a lot of space in them. They're outside. There's a lot of air. And I'm feeling I'd rather do something a little more enclosed. So that's the that's the most it was. Mm -hmm. And then I, I lay down this color um, and started wiping it away. And then we're suddenly like in the middle of this pretty dense forest. Mm. And then it's just, you know, then it's in, intuitive composition. So it's like, and, and this is where you don't even think. It's just like, you know, you you feel that this area here needs something to take the eye away from that. And this area here has to balance what's happening down there. And th there's too many large things here and not enough large things there or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. But that, but that's, yeah, that it's so intuitive. It's not even a conscious thought. Got it. And you try to stay away from being too literal in, in terms of like a narrative? I have a or... problem with that. Yeah. So I definitely, I mean, that's killed so many of my paintings over the years where I just, have this compulsion to to nail something down when I really need to pull back and let it not quite be there so that mm -hmm. the viewer can actually finish it up for themselves, you know? 
Right. Um, so that's that's something that's a, a problem I have being too, being too literal. How do you keep yourself from doing that? Con- that's conscious. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just like just stop. <laughs> stop. Do you have a trusted somebody that will come in and and save you from yourself or? Uh, I don't, but I do have uh, a trusted coterie of um, actual grad school buddies who um, I will send images to and be like, can you tell what this is (laughs) or or whatever, (laughs) you know, Um, and and they're, you know, they're, they're smart, articulate people. So I, I trust what they say. And even if I disagree with them, I, um, it's just good for me to hear how they are seeing things. Right. Do you use a reference of any kind? Because your your imagery is pretty, uh, there's a level of detail there that seems would be difficult to get just out of your imagination. I mean, that's I often, meant as a compliment, but. <laughs> I often will, like not, not for everything, obviously. And that would maybe come into the literal thing where um, something might look specific, but you can't quite identify it. And that's fine. But then there'll be other things where, like, for example, this dog head. I was trying to do a dog line upside down, um, and I just could not get mm. it to look like a dog. It was looking like a pig. And um, and so then I had to, like, get my dog to, like, lie down and do something so I could get his the structure of his face and his mm-hmm. ear and that sort of thing. But I also, um, I, I don't know if you know this, but I, when I was living overseas, I had the um, garden design business. So I'm pretty familiar with the way that plants look. And mm-hmm. so I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm decent at suggesting diverse sorts of textures and that kind of thing. Um, just because I'm familiar with a lot of different plants. Right. Right. I, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but I, when we were in Chicago, um, I think my first year there, I, I read the book devil in the white city. I don't uh, know if you're familiar with the book, but, yeah. um, there's a pretty in-depth description of of uh, landscape design. Uh, there, you know, one of the historical figures in the book is a. Uh, I'm not getting the, uh, but it, essentially, somebody who does kind of what you're talking about designs uh, parks and spaces and flowers and trees and they, like the layout. I I forget what. They're it, making a garden is like making a painting, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's all that sort of tension and harmony that, that a successful painting has, a successful garden. Do you still do gardening? Uh, just for myself and loved ones. No more clients. Mm. Well, that's. I imagine that's a bigger thing in uh, you're in England. Yeah. I, I imagine it's a bigger uh, business there, or is it not? It, uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a big thing there, and. Um, it, it's also interesting because in England, you know, England has this reputation as being this this island of gardeners. And so I think a lot of people, um, certainly my friends at the time who I started doing it for, they would buy these houses and they wouldn't have a clue themselves what to do in the garden. But mm-hmm. there's this sort of just English character thing where they felt they had to have a nice garden. Right. Um, so there's, there's less of that in America. A couple more questions, then I'll let you go. I, I... Impasto, the the thickness, the paint application. I feel like one of the one of the things that I appreciate about your work is it feels like you are conscious of the use of impasto. Like there are, um, you know, I've I've run across in Los Angeles. I run a lot, across a lot of ocean paintings, 
And oftentimes the way that impasto is used is just kind of gross. You know, it's, it's evenly applied across the surface of the painting and there's not really an attention to the fact that it can be used as a point of contrast. I don't know if you can hear that leaf blower right outside. That's annoying. But there's just kind of an insensitivity to impasto as, as um, a compositional element, right? And a tool. How do you think, do you have conscious thoughts about impasto and how it's used? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I almost, I, I like never use that term um, with my students. I probably should. I guess for me, impasto is a very specific sort of uh, use of thick paint. Whereas what I use in my own paintings and what I try to teach my students is uh, we use a diversity of paint um, physicality hmm. and, and, and diversity of all sorts of things in our work. And that's one thing that makes the work successful, but in terms of the thickness of paint, absolutely. Yeah. You don't, um, I mean, I, I have thick paint right next to washes and, you know, dribbles and, and all sorts of, uh, go, going back to what we we're talking about earlier, like, you know, paint can do so many crazy things just as this physical presence. Mm-hmm. And so I try to, really push it as much as I can to, um, to to celebrate all of its potential on the painting. So yeah, absolutely. There'll be thickness, but um, you know, it's done with, it's done with intention um, right. and, and, and consideration. So there's not any sort of blanket thickness or, or blanket thinness, you know, it's really trying to get this like balance that you get through all the formal elements um, and the physicality of paint is just one more formal element. Right. I, I like that, the, that framing, the, the talking about it in terms of the physicality of paint, it, it becomes a, a more meaningful way or, or word to use than impasto. Impasto does kind of have a lot of other associations. I just, when I hear impasto, I just think of like bad work. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. It's true. It's true. And then the last thing that I was going to ask about, um, I don't even know if there's a question there as much as there's just the comment that I, maybe that's it. I just want to pass a compliment that, <laughs> that the work uh, from that moment, almost there were, there were, there was such a, dist- what's so kind of wonderful and, and uh, um, remarkable to me is it really does feel like the, there was that one pivotal moment. And from then on, like your paintings have just been dynamite. Like, I feel like there's such a depth of emotion and it really feels like, like you found how to reach that core of yourself, you know, and like how to access that, whatever that authentic you is, like you, you tapped into it somehow. Now I feel like most, most everybody has that potential, but to be able to actually tap into that in a, in a really compelling way is, is a rare find and, you know, However, you did it. <laughs> well, I you you managed it, and it's <laughs> and it's it's wonderful to see. So that that's much more complimentary than it should be. There along the way, there have been plenty of fails. <laughs> so, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure you've made, played. Yeah, you know. And I guess I guess the one thing and... it did um, is it showed me how it when things are right, this is what should be happening. Right. You know. Right. So that uh, when it's not happening like that, then something's got to change to take it back in that kind of direction. How would you describe that? What is right when it's, or what is it that's happening when it's right? 
Um, you feel utterly confident, you know, that you can do this. And um, you find yourself just making really good decisions. And it's not, um, it sounds really arrogant. And it's totally not meant to be arrogant at all. Because like I said, along the way, like, or, you know, um, especially if you, if one of your kind of guiding principles is to to challenge yourself and to um, confound expectations and that kind of thing, like you're gonna, there's gonna be a lot of bad things along the way, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. crappy paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I've had a lot of those. But when things what, are what other right, word, what other yeah. word you word would you use or could you use besides confident? Uh, well, feel... conviction. You're working with conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just trying to think, um, like what, what I was talking earlier when you were talking about uh, who I talk to about my work. And, um, you know, even when my friends are like, like well, I've got one, one really good friend who is really one of the best painters um, I know. And she'll, <laughs> she'll tell me all the time, not all the time, uh, she'll, she'll often say, I think it's done, as it is. And I will... I understand where she's coming from because of the sort of painter that she is, but I will know for myself, like, okay, this could be done if it was her painting mm-hmm. and it would be great because it's her painting. But mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's not done yet, but it will be done. I can see how it will be done. Right. Um, so it's, and it's, it's more like the sort of confidence you get just from experience. I think it's, it's, um, it's not sort of, it's no blind confidence. It's, it's a confidence that like, you've you've earned in some way just through like making it through all these struggles along the way Mm -hmm. so that you just know things could it be said then that if you're early on in your career or early on in your life and don't have a whole lot of life experience that it's confidence in just whatever level that you're at like how would you teach that what you're talking about to to a student that's just at the beginning of their well i I do i I've got this when an intro painting, we do this whole thing, and there's a list of seven qualities that every great painting has. <laughs> and so one of them is conviction. Hmm. And so even if you don't, um, you know, even if you're a wee babe in the world, uh, <laughs> you can certainly present things with conviction. And that, that can be an, an, a lesson in itself so that you don't necessarily believe in something, but you present it as though you do. Mm-hmm. And then you see the response to that. And that can be just something you kind of, you know, put in your, put in your pocket and think about in the future. Right. If people want to see your work, where's the best, uh, best place to find it? Oh, well, I've actually, I do have this uh, show up right now. Um, if, if anybody is in Eastern Tennessee, uh, it's up until July 2nd, it's at the Reese Museum in Johnson City, Tennessee. Uh, Inst- I'm, I'm pretty good on Instagram. I, uh, I do have my own website, which is christianreben.com. Um, but I'm also, I'm on Instagram, which is Christian Reben art. And, uh, I, I, you know, at least, uh, post a couple things a week, uh, studio things, what's, what's going on, um, successfully or, or not. Um, mm-hmm. there's probably going to be a, a Thalo painting in there very shortly. <laughs> Look forward to it. I, I am a follower. I enjoy, I enjoy watching them come through. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Uh, well, Christian, I thank you so much for your time. This has been great. It's been love hearing about the work. So. Thank, thank you. I, I appreciate you contacting me. I appreciate you even noticing my work.
(laughs) (laughs) I certainly do. I really do enjoy it. I really enjoyed this conversation with Christian and hope to get to catch up with him again in the future. You can see Christian's work at Christian Reben Art on Instagram. His website is christianreben.com, Reben spelled R-I-E-B-E-N. And his exhibit, Folly, is on display at Reese Museum in Johnson City, Tennessee through July 2nd, 2021. All of this info and a short bio is on the website for this podcast at dabblon, that's D-A-B-B-L-E-O-N.com forward slash podcast. Rate me on iTunes, subscribe on the website, and tell friends and family. And go make artwork you care about.